All right, great start to our summer series. I've titled this message, Wisdom or Folly, You Decide. Plenty of folly in that video. Like A.D. said, that's the first installment of many for the summer. And uh, this morning, we want to just start in with this idea of we've got to recognize wisdom and also folly. The sermons this summer will train us to discern that, to discern that difference as we engage in this very unique book of Scripture, the book of Proverbs. It's extremely practical, more practical than probably any other book in the Scripture. And um, it's just full of different themes. And, and I think the one word that best maybe summarizes the book of Proverbs for me is the word prudence. Um, to be prudent means to be wise in practical affairs. And this word is used in Solomon's introduction. Solomon wrote most of the Proverbs. His introduction is one sentence, but it's six verses long. And he uses this word prudence a couple times. So I encourage you to turn in your personal Bible to Proverbs chapter 1. We're going to read that long one-sentence introduction. And as I read it, just be aware of the things. There's a number of things that we can expect to gain through engaging with this book this summer. And we want to encourage all of you to read it multiple times. We'll talk more about that schedule that will follow over the summer later in this message. All right, Proverbs 1.1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for gaining, number one, wisdom and instruction, number two, for understanding words of insight, Number three, for receiving instruction in prudent behavior and doing what is right and just and fair. For giving prudence to those who are simple, knowledge and discernment to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning. Let the discerning get guidance for understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. And so we can gain all this through this engagement with this book this summer. And to be prudent people, to be wise in the practical affairs of life, we've got to be able to discern wisdom from what this book calls folly. And there's a lot of references in this book to folly. And that's important for our series this summer because this, the difference between wisdom and folly is kind of obscured in our culture. Because those who embrace folly sometimes think that they've found the truth and they're living in the joy of folly and they look at us and say, you guys are the ones who are off and they're embracing what we would call folly. It's exactly what Proverbs 15.2 says. Look at this. Folly brings joy to the one who has no sense. But whoever has understanding keeps a straight course. That's what we want is that straight course. That's being wise in the practical affairs of life. But our world, it's very countercultural, as we're going to see. And so it's important that we have this ability to discern wisdom from folly. The Proverbs talks a lot about wisdom, especially the first nine to ten chapters. And it also references folly quite a bit. Let me give you a quick run through here of some of these texts that use this word folly. First of all, from chapter 5, verse 23. For lack of discipline they will die led astray by their own great folly. Folly leads us astray. Prudence helps us to wise, live wisely in the practical affairs of life. Folly is just the opposite. It, it spins us off and leads us astray. 
It's used also in chapter 12, verse 23. The prudent keep their knowledge to themselves, but a fool's heart blurts out folly. Do we not live in a culture that blurts folly? Anybody has a voice today. Every person on the planet has a platform through social media. And so there's a lot of blurting out of folly, more so than any other time really in human history. Chapter 14, verse 24. The wealth of the wise is their crown, but the folly of fools yields more folly. That's the thing about this foolishness, this folly. It's, it kind of expands, reproduces itself. And it's so important for us as parents to understand what is folly and turn from it. Because if we have a little folly in our lives, guess what? Our kids will have a lot of folly in their lives. What we do in moderation, they may excuse in excess, even if it's folly. So it's especially important for you as parents, grandparents, that you discern the difference between wisdom and folly because folly tends to just kind of go crazy. Proverbs 15, 2. I'm sorry, we already mentioned. Let me go on. Well, no, 15, 2, there it is. I turn my, the tongue of the wise adorns knowledge, but the mouth of the fool gushes folly. There it is again, just this gushing out of foolishness. Now Solomon, who wrote most of the Proverbs, also wrote the book, the next book in the scripture of Ecclesiastes, and he continues this theme there, and he gives us almost kind of what I think of a goal statement for this summer. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. Solomon says, I intentionally tried to discern the difference by thinking about wisdom, but also applying my mind to understand folly. Next screen, next verse. I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. And this is a section of Ecclesiastes where Solomon had tried many things for his own pleasure. He had tried women. He was the guy who had like 700 and some wives. It's a bit excessive. He tried wine and music. He tried great projects, building stuff. He tried gardening. He did all this stuff. He was a student. He tried learning, education, reading. And the conclusion of the matter is, wisdom is better than folly. He goes on next in chapter 7, and I would recommend this as kind of a personal goal statement for our summer study as you engage with this book through the sermons and through your own personal reading. Let's embrace what Solomon did. Solomon says, I turned my mind to understand, to investigate, and to search out wisdom and the scheme of things, and also to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. What strong language, isn't it? Solomon says, I not only wanted to discover and investigate God's wisdom, but I want to understand how mad folly is, the stupidity of folly. Interesting language. So that's our, one of our goals for the summer is that we would all grow in our discernment of wisdom compared to folly. And you're going to see as we go through, I've already referenced a lot of Proverbs scriptures. That's what these sermons are going to be, a little more buckshot than normal because chapters 1 through 9 are really elevate wisdom. It's kind of an extended introduction about wisdom. From chapter 10 on, it's just these random verses. There might be 15, 20 themes in any one chapter. And so as we preach this, we're going to reference a lot of different verses. You won't be able to keep up with writing all the words down, so just jot down the references. We'll try to put those in the bulletin as well that you can access. Um, 
That's where we're headed. One more thing by way of introduction. It's important you understand that the Proverbs is poetry, and about a third of the Old Testament is the genre of poetry, and there's some unique characteristics of Hebrew poetry. One, like a lot of poetry, it's, it's full of imagery, and uh, we see this throughout. So you'll see a lot of metaphors or what we might think of as object lessons. There'll be a truth stated, and then some metaphor or illustration from creation or life in general that kind of illustrates that truth. Um, it's probably why Jesus taught in parables, or one of the reasons. Hebrew people were used to this Hebrew parallelism and this imagery, and most of Jesus' parables kind of made the most or leveraged a typical thing, object lesson from the world that he then used to illustrate a spiritual truth. So he taught on things like sheep and goats. He taught about farming and the soils and seed and what happens when a seed grows. He talked about making bread and leaven in the bread and what that's about. All these things were imagery to help people understand the truths that he was teaching. Number two, and I encourage you to write these down, by the way, and then keep these in your personal Bible as you read through Proverbs so you can access and resource some of this information. Number two, there's a lot of word plays and sound plays within these Proverbs and how this poetry is laid out. Number three, I want to spend a little more time on this, is a thing that's not totally unique to Hebrew poetry, but very elevated in Hebrew poetry, and that's the idea of what's called Hebrew parallelism. Hebrew parallelism, which means you might have two lines of poetry within one sentence, and one line amplifies the other. So the two are very related in terms of their meaning, but there's different kinds of parallelism, as we've listed in your bulletin, your sermon notes. Let me define those for you now and illustrate them. Number one is what we call synonymous parallelism. And this is just repetition of an idea. So it's just saying the same thing in a different way with different words. That's what synonymous means. Let me just give you an illustration from chapter 19, verse 5. We don't have these on the screen, so just listen. The first line of 19.5 says, a false witness will not go unpunished. Okay? You think about that. It's like, all right, that makes sense. A false witness will not go unpunished. The second line says the same thing with different words. Whoever pours out lies will not go free. Really the same truth, but it gives a little more insight into it. If I just think about whoever, um, a false witness will not go unpunished, I think, okay. But then when I think about whoever does lie, whoever gives false witness will not go free, I begin to think of bondage. And I realize that, my goodness, if I'm testifying falsely about somebody else, if I'm speaking slander or even gossip that I don't know to be true, there's going to be some bondage. I'm not going to be able to walk freely through life. Well, that's a whole different understanding of that truth because of the synonymous parallelism. Second type of parallelism is what we call antithetical parallelism. This just means anti-theme or a different theme, opposite, if you will. Antithetical parallelism is just the opposite of or a contrast. We're going to focus a little more on Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 in a few minutes. And that's one of the Proverbs that probably a lot of you have memorized. And it's a great example of, uh, of this opposite, this antithetical parallelism. Let me say the first line and you say the second one. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Second line. There it is. That's opposite. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. The opposite of that is leaning or depending on your own understanding. 
So that's antithetical parallelism. So it's one thing to think, yeah, I should trust in the Lord with all my heart. Yeah, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to do. And that may seem a little mystical. I'm not sure what that means. But then if you say to me, lean not on your own understanding, oh, oh, I have more insight on what it means to trust the Lord with all my heart. I have to turn from depending on my own understanding. So it's same idea, but just the parallelism gives us more insight into it. Third type of parallelism is what we call emblematic or maybe illustrative. This is where one line illumines, maybe illustrates the next. So maybe the first line is literal and the second more metaphorical. I'll let you write that down, then I'll give you an example from Proverbs 19.2. Maybe you want to write that reference down as well. 19.2 says, desire without knowledge is not good. Okay? So if I have desire for stuff, but I don't have the knowledge to steward those desires or control those desires wisely, that's not good. But the second line uh, illustrates that with an illustration of walking. And it says, how much more will hasty feet miss the way? Hasty feet means I'm following my desires. <laughs> I got hasty feet. Ooh, I want that. <gasps> So I go get that. And then, ooh, I like that. And I run over there and I get that. And I spend my whole life chasing my desires. And the text says, hasty feet cause me to miss the way. Miss the way of prudence. So you see how the parallelism helps you understand this? Desire without knowledge is not good. Yeah, I know that. But if I start chasing all my desires, I miss the way of prudence. A fourth type of parallelism is called climactic. This is where the second line amplifies or elevates the first. So it just, there's a truth and then it kind of takes that truth to another level. Proverbs, um, let me give you an illustration of that. Proverbs 18.16 says, a gift opens the way. All right, so if I just meditate on that, if I give someone a gift, <coughs> it opens the relationship a little more creates a new expression or level of a relationship. The second line that elevates this even more, takes it to another level, the first line, a gift opens the way, the second one, and ushers the giver into the presence of the great. What? If I give a gift to someone that opens a relationship to me, if I continue to do that, it ushers me into the presence of the great. Great people are giving people. What did Jesus say it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. And so you see what this climactic parallelism does? It just elevates the truth, takes it to another level, which makes me want to know it, experience it, follow it all the more. And the fifth is what we call synthetic parallelism. <clears throat> this is where the second line might be a continuation of or adds to the first line. It's similar to some of the others, similar to climactic a little bit, but it's more instead of elevating it, just a continuation of the thought, where the second line is a continuation or adds to the first line. Proverbs 19, 18 would be an illustration of this. It says, discipline your children, for in that there is hope. And by the way, there's tons of Proverbs um, related to parenting. A lot of great parenting advice for you parents in the book of Proverbs. And I'm going to show you how to kind of index that a little later. But this particular verse 
says, um, discipline your children for in that there is hope. It goes on and says, do not be a willing party to their death. That's quite an extension of thought, isn't it? Discipline your children because in that there's hope. As you continue, if you stop doing that, in some ways you're a willing party to their destruction. So discipline your children and keep on disciplining them. Don't stop disciplining your children or you're participating in their destruction. That's a good example of synthetic parallelism. All right, the end of the sermon will give you five ways to engage personally with the Proverbs and to apply some of these kind of things we've said by way of introduction. If I had to say my real desired outcome for you by the end of the summer of this study through the sermon and through your own reading, I would say it this way, Proverbs 3.5 would be my hope for you. My hope by the end of the summer is that every one of us would have a greater measure of trusting in the Lord with all our heart. That if you're trusting now, by the end of August, you're trusting more. (laughs) And so for that reason, I want to focus a little bit on Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 today, just a few minutes. But before we do that, let's just pray and kind of commit all this to the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, we do thank you. We're going to see, particularly in the first chapters of this book, that you really are wisdom personified. And because you came to us and poured out yourself for us, we not only have the privilege of salvation and being reconciled to the Father through your completed work, we not only receive the Holy Spirit and the gifts that he gives, but we get wisdom, the wisdom of God personified in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we just are grateful for that. And Lord, we just need to be able to understand what you've given us in this wisdom. And so I pray that as we go about this summer, as we're intentional to engage with the book of Proverbs, that we, like Solomon, would give ourselves to intentionally discover your ways of wisdom, God, and also understand the stupidity and madness of folly. We pray to you because we need help to discern that, because in our culture, that's all kind of convoluted. And um, so would would you do that in us? this summer as we study this great book of Proverbs. Um, For your sake and your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, I want to give you five points. Just quickly break down Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, which says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Number one, to trust in the Lord is to depend. Depend on God's wisdom. You know, we think of trust maybe synonymous with faith or belief, but I think in our culture sometimes to believe has really gotten watered down because everybody talks about that. Just believe. Believe in something. Believe in yourself. The Scripture says, no, we should not only just declare something to be true, or, but we need to trust, and the object of our trust needs to be God. Trust in the Lord, and I think a better synonym for trust is this idea of depending. And dependence involves a risk, doesn't it? Um, Because what if that person doesn't come through for you? If you depend on someone else and they don't come through for you, that's rough. So it requires faith. It requires, I'm going to depend on God. I'm going to trust Him with everything, with every part of my life. Which means I'm going to cry out to Him a lot. One of the best illustrations we have of a dependent person is a small child. And they come to us often, Daddy, can you help me? Grandma, can you help me? They're dependent on you. They're dependent. God wants us to be dependent 
on him. Number two, trust is holistic. The phrase says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. So trust is holistic, involving the mind, the will, and the emotions. Trust is not just some cognitive acknowledgement of truth. Trust is not saying, yeah, I believe Jesus died on the cross. Trust is banking your life on that, anchoring your life to the truth of the gospel. And it involves not only a cognitive awareness or a cognitive um, declaration, but it requires an emotional response as well. Um, That's what with all your heart means. The heart is the center of the mind, the will, and the emotions. And so if I'm going to trust the Lord with all my heart, when I'm emotional, when I get angry or frustrated, what do I do? I don't vent on my spouse or vent on somebody else. Rather, I trust in the Lord. Maybe I vent on him. And I talk to him about my frustration. More of that in two weeks when we talk about the Proverbs in relation to anger. So I trust in him. And not in my own venting. You see the difference? Um, when I feel a little bit of scarcity or I feel like, oh my goodness, God, I I need more help. We just need more money to pay the bills. And for crying out loud, it took me $105 to fill up my vehicle the other day. Are you kidding me? Well, instead of grumbling about gas prices, I can go to the Lord with that emotion and say, God, thanks for all that you've given me. (laughs) Thank you for the blessings. Thank you for the blessings. See how we trust in the Lord with our emotions. And then our will, that's the volitional aspect of our being. Our will is just the thing that, where we make our choices. And that leads to our behavior. So we make our choices and we do certain things. That's the practical outworking of our choices, behavior. All of this we want to trust the Lord. It's a holistic thing. Thirdly, here's the antithetical parallelism. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own personal understanding or knowledge. And this is where it gets difficult because by nature we do depend on ourselves. And we're taught it's up to you. Nobody's going to do it for you. You've got to take charge. You got to, it's up to you. And so to do this, to trust in the Lord with all our heart, means we have to deliberately and intentionally turn from trusting in our own knowledge, in our own ability. This is a high and hard calling, especially in an information-saturated culture where everyone is trying to influence us often for their own benefit. Everybody on the planet has a global platform today through social media. Everybody. And everybody's trying to influence everybody else. And it's very difficult to discern wisdom from folly. And it's very difficult to not be influenced by the folly that is blotted from people's mouths or through their fingers or however it comes to us. We feel pressure by that. Yeah, yeah. And then you read another guy. Yeah, yeah. So it's very important that we discern this wisdom from folly, but very difficult in our culture. Our culture values information, and we are on overload with information. We live in a glut of information in this culture. There's some really good parts to that. There's some really potentially dangerous parts to that. And so one of the things we have to understand is this discernment between wisdom and folly. And the challenge in our culture, it's so countercultural that it's almost 180 degrees. What, we, what God calls wisdom, our culture calls folly. 
what our culture says is the right way to live and fun and joy and great, God's Word says that's, that's kind of folly. Paul warned us about this, warned the Corinthians about this. In 1 Corinthians 2, look at some of this, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness. So the unbelieving people of the world think the stuff of God is just flat out foolish. They think it's folly. And they can't understand God's wisdom because this is discerned only through the Spirit. Next verse. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Isn't that amazing, Christian? What to you is the power of God, what to you is your eternal hope, you are anchored in the gospel of Jesus Christ, is flat-out foolishness to the unbelieving world. Just just completely antithetical. And, and, And you've heard it. You've heard people say, well, you Christians, you need a crutch. Your, your faith is this is an emotional crutch. And they think it's foolishness. They think we're weak. The very thing that we would say is the power of God, the power of the cross, they say is foolishness. See how difficult this is? This, Paul goes on. The last verse here. Next screen, please. The foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Boy, you got to remember that in your pursuit of wisdom this summer, in discerning it. Even the, the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, which is really complete folly. Do you see how culturally against the grain this is? So this makes this whole thing we're doing really kind of difficult when we realize what we embrace as wisdom is considered foolishness in the world's eyes and vice versa. And so people who literally are living in a certain way with a certain identity and they think, man, they finally found it, they've discovered it, and we're just a bunch of prudes or bigots. What we're saying is, oh, you poor thing. You're living in folly. They don't see it as folly. So it's tough. And it doesn't mean we need to run out of here and say, oh, you're all foolish in the world. You're living, you're following foolishness, you're folly. No, 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 we got to embrace wisdom and live wisdom as an example and love all people and try to love them to this knowledge of wisdom in the gospel. All right, number four, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. That's in everything, submit to God's wisdom. That word acknowledge really means submit. So this is not only a discovery of God's wisdom, but then a submission to it. Now, I, I, don't, I don't trust in the Lord if I don't submit to his wisdom if I don't choose what he tells me to choose, if I don't do life his way. Um, And so this is submitting to God's revealed truth, not human ideas, not human data, media, information, science. And please don't hear me saying that there's nothing good in science. There is. There's truth in science. There's truth in psychology. There's truth in anthropology. There's truth in all of, of these pursuits. Psychology. But there's also plenty of folly in there. And our challenge is to discern through the Word of God what is wisdom, truth, and what is human, folly. Um, and Scripture doesn't speak to everything. There's plenty of truth that comes to us that's outside Scripture. For example, the reason I'm not floating off of this stage and bouncing off the ceiling this morning is a thing called gravity. Science discovered that a long time ago. Scripture's completely silent about that. 
and many other things, but that doesn't mean it's not true. Truth is just simply an expression of reality. Truth is reality. So all truth is God's truth, whether it's revealed in the scripture or otherwise. But our challenge is to discern what is true, what is wisdom, and what is folly in a culture that has it flipped upside down and that would criticize us for what they see us embracing in, in their mind, that's foolishness. So what we want to do is um, embrace, submit to God's wisdom. And another word, I can't go on without this. It says, in everything, submit to God's wisdom. The text says, in all your ways. And so this is, again, a holistic view of this idea. And typically we kind of live our life in little boxes or silos, don't we? Especially men, because we can only think about one thing at a time, let alone do two things at a time. That's we're men. That's how our brains are. We're very simplistic creatures. Um, so we silo life. We have my work box. And when I'm at work, I'm not thinking about stuff in the family. But then I have a family box, and when I'm in the family stuff, I don't want to talk about work. And sometimes my wife will want to talk about the ministry when I'm in my family box, and I'm like, <laughs> I don't want to talk about them. So, yeah, because I'm a silo kind of guy. And then I have my leisurely uh, silo. How many of you are golfers? How many of you love it when you're in the backswing and somebody wants to talk current events? It's enough to make you want to cuss. Because you can only do one thing at a time, all right? Well, the challenge here is to trust in the Lord with all your heart. In all your ways, submit to him, acknowledge him. This is a holistic trust. So try to avoid siloing your spiritual life. Try avoiding this work thing, leisure thing, family thing, church spiritual thing. Let your relationship with Jesus Christ permeate every aspect of life so you can submit in all things, in everything, to God's ways. And God's ways is the Scripture. And I want to just elevate this once more. Live and preach the Bible, not my own ideas or others' ideas. This is so important. And I mentioned this a couple weeks ago when one of our trainers to our African church planners, this is what they teach him. They teach him, just preach the Bible. Don't preach your ideas about the Bible. Don't preach your ideas about something else. Just preach the Bible. This came to me in a powerful way decades ago. I was a young youth pastor, and I'd only completed about half of my seminary or Bible training. And the church I was at, would, our pastor would bring in well-known speakers and theologians, and he brought a guy in named Walter Kaiser. Uh, Dr. Kaiser was a professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, later went to Gordon-Conwell. He's now, I think he's like 90 now, he's still living. And he was kind of a quirky guy. I'd never met him, and he kind of talked a little funny, a little quirky. And, and after the service, we had lunch, and we were sitting around the table, and I asked him, I said, Dr. Kaiser, why, I'm halfway through my seminary, why should I finish at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School? I was expecting this profound answer from this world-renowned Old Testament scholar. And he said, well, 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 well that's easy. It's the B-I-B-L-E. I'm like, that's all you got? That's a kid's song for crying. What are you talking about? But what he, when he said the B-I-B-L-E, that was what compelled me to go to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School because above every other piece of knowledge on the planet from eternity past to eternity future, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School then as now elevates the Holy Word of God. And when you come out of Trinity, you preach the Word of God. And you learn all kinds of other stuff about what people say about the Bible, but you leave there saying it's about the B-I-B-L-E. 
And that's what we need in order to discern wisdom from folly. I, I just don't think we're going to have much chance at that without the Holy Scripture. So stay anchored to the essential truth of God's Word. Number five, then there's a promise in these verses. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge Him. And here's the promise, He will direct your paths. God will make your path straight. And that's this prudence that we started with, to be able to live wisely in the practical affairs of life. All right, now to wrap up, I want to give you five points of practical ways to engage over the next three months with this book of Proverbs. And we want to all do this together, church. We want you to, number one, read the Proverbs chapter that corresponds to the day of the month. There's 31 chapters in Proverbs. There's only 30 days in June, so you won't read chapter 31. But if you're married and wise like I am, you would say, I don't need to read chapter 31 because my wife personifies it to perfection, so there's no reason for me to really read that. That says about 10 of you understand what Proverbs 31 talks about, so go home and read it and you'll get the point there. Um, but in July and August, there's 31 days, so you'll read every chapter. So we're going to do it three times. We're going to cycle it through three times. Wasn't it for some of you who understood, I just got some points with my wife. Did you understand that? It is not about points, but they never hurt you, men. They just never do. So today's June 5th, so this afternoon you ought to read Proverbs. That's ah, not hard. Tomorrow's June 6th. Read Proverbs 6, and off we go through the month. Now, I would encourage you to have your children read this as well. If your child can read, they should be doing this. Now, you maybe want to get them a more readable version, like the New Living Translation, or even a paraphrase. There's Somebody's probably got a the book of Proverbs for children out there somewhere that's a paraphrase. That's okay. But do it together kind of as a family. Have your kids read it. Talk about it at the dinner table. Maybe you want to read the chapter of the day at the dinner table. Maybe you want to, if your child can't read at night when you put them to bed, you read that chapter and maybe isolate a verse or two and talk about that with the child. Um, these are just as valuable for their children as, you are, as they are you. That's what Solomon said in, in that introduction I read. These are for the simple. These are for the young. I don't know that there's a better thing you could pour into your children this summer than three times through the book of Proverbs. So do this together as a family. Number two, another way of engagement is to summarize one or two key verses in principal language and memorize that verse and then pray for it. Let me give you an example. Proverbs 18.21, the first line says, the tongue has power of life and death. And if I'm reading that chapter on the 18th day of the month and I come across that verse, it's going to grab me. Whoa, the tongue has power of life and death. Maybe I write that in my own words. I have to watch, I have to be careful with what I say because my words either build people up or tear them down. It's got the power of life and death. And then maybe I want to memorize that, and that's not hard to do. The tongue has power of life and death. Say it with me. The tongue has power of life and death. Say it without me. Boom, you just memorized it. You keep saying it or you'll forget it by lunchtime. But it's not hard to do. And then pray James 1.5. James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. So pray for the wisdom to steward your tongue. God, I need your help that what I say will only build people up because I know my tongue, wow, with what I say I can build people up or tear them down. Pray for that wisdom in the use of the tongue. Number three, categorize key verses as you read a chapter of a day by putting little symbols in your Bible margin. This is another thing I learned from Walter Kaiser. I ended up going to Trinity and sat under him, and one day he was preaching in class, 
and uh, some Old Testament text, because that's what he preached. He was an Old Testament prof. And he said, you guys, you guys, write little symbols in your Bible so you remember what this is about. And they'll teach you. And so he says, if you look at my Bible here, I got a little roadrunner I drew in the margin. What? There's a world-renowned scholar, and he's writing roadrunners in the margin of his Bible? Kind of like A.D. playing with his motorcycle at his desk. What's up with that? And so I started to do that. And here's a picture of, of one of my Bibles with some symbols beside each verse. And you come up with your own symbols. They only have to have meaning for you. You don't have to be as transparent as I am and show you that. Let me just explain what these are because some of these symbols are not legible to you. Um, first column, go down about three verses there. You see something in the margin? That's supposed to be a picture of a tongue. I know you're going to laugh at me, but I have a weak self-image, so please be nice. Um, so any verse that talks about the tongue, like Proverbs 18, 21, I'll guarantee you there's a tongue in the margin of my Bible. And I can look through the book of Proverbs and I can come up with 20 verses on the use of the tongue and the mouth in speech just by looking at those little symbols in the margin. Next one looks like a guy with his head up in the air. That's a verse on pride. Next one down, look, you see a little money symbol. Lots of Proverbs on money, managing money, stewarding money. Uh, next one down is like a finger pointing. That's a rebuke. Next one down, that's, it looks like a wine bottle, but that's supposed to be a paddle because it talks about the discipline of children. And so I can find a lot of verses on discipline really quickly just by looking for that symbol in the book of Proverbs in my Bible. The next one just looks like a glob. That's supposed to be a stick figure kneeling in reverence with his head down because that verse is about reverence. You come up with the symbols. It doesn't matter. They don't have to match this at all. So that's just a helpful tool for you to kind of index the multiple themes in the book of Proverbs and find them quickly. Number four, um, discover a chapter or a weekly theme and then cross-reference it to other scripture. For example, Proverbs 18.21, the tongue has power of life and death. If you cross-reference that through your Bible study or through a concordance or other biblical tools, you're ultimately going to get to James chapter 3 that says the tongue, even though it's small, boasts great strength. And it uses three illustrations to talk about the power of the tongue. It's like a rudder that turns a huge ship, a small rudder, big ship. It's like a spark that starts a forest fire, small spark, big forest fire. It's like a bridle, small thing in the mouth of a horse that turns this massive animal wherever you want him to go. That's the power of the tongue. And so by cross-referencing and isolating a theme, you, again, you get way more insight into the wisdom of stewarding your language and your tongue. And then number five, this comes from the ESV Study Bible. <clears throat> they talk about three V's. What virtue does this proverb commend? What vice does it disapprove of? And what value does it affirm? So if you want a little more cognitive analysis, I'd, I'd recommend these three V's to you. All right. Start in with us, church. Just read the proverb of the day using some of these methods or mix them up and... Uh, I think we'll have a great experience as we move through the summer. Now, one of the things you're going to see, especially in the first chapters of Proverbs, is that wisdom gets assigned human characteristics. We call that personification. Uh, in chapter 8, I think wisdom is referred to as she. Kind of these human wisdom calls out. So these are human characteristics. Most scholars feel that the wisdom that's expressed in Proverbs is ultimately personified in Jesus Christ. And that when we're reading about wisdom in the book of Proverbs, we're really reading about Jesus. 
And so Jesus is a living example to us of how to live wisely, how to depend fully on the power of God. And so when we feed on Jesus, we not only take him in spiritually, but we are in some way also ingesting wisdom. And so when Jesus told us to take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, he was in part commanding us to ingest his wisdom. And so we're going to celebrate the Lord's broken body and blood this morning as really a recommitment to ingest Jesus Christ and also his wisdom. And if you didn't pick up a cup and you would like to participate this morning, just raise your hand. We've got some folks who can take those around to you. Just raise your hand and keep it up and we'll, we'll get it to you. And when we partake of the Lord's Supper, what we're really doing is expressing the truth of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. We're saying, I want to trust in the Lord with all my heart. I don't want to lean on my own understanding. I want to put my trust in Jesus Christ who was broken and poured out for me. And like Psalm 20 verse 7 says, some trust in chariots, some in horses but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. So the expression of the Lord's table is really a turning from leaning on my own understanding or the understanding of other people in the world and trusting in the wisdom and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the